Father, thanks for this morning. We could sit in stillness for just a minute to ask you to meet us during this time. That by the power of your spirit, you would speak to us through your word as we get a chance to listen in, Jesus, to your prayer to the Father. Would you give us eyes to see what we need to see this morning, ears to hear, hearts to be transformed, that any type of pride would be broken down in us this morning to be able to receive what you have for us. We ask that you would do it. I pray in your name. Amen. Well, welcome. Good to see you this morning. If you don't already have a Bible, take out a Bible, whether it's on your phone or if you have a physical Bible, follow along with us. We are in John chapter 17, as we just read. We've been in the Gospel of John for, it's been about a year and a half now, and we're coming towards the end of the Gospel, and we will finish it in April. Uh, when we have Easter, and then we will jump into the book of Colossians for a couple of months. And so typically we're walking through chapters of the Bible uh, verse by verse, and that's what we're going to be doing this morning. And where we find ourselves in the text this morning, what Quinn just read, is the end of chapter 17, where we catch ourselves listening in to Jesus praying to his Father. Jesus prays a ton in the Bible, and we see even in the Gospels, he gets away and he prays with his Father. He goes to a mountain early in the morning and prays to his Father. But this is the one time we actually get to listen to the words that Jesus is praying to his Father in this moment, as the next scene we're going to see, starting in chapter 18 next week, is Jesus is in the garden, and he gets betrayed, arrested, eventually heading towards his death on the cross. And John 17 really breaks down nicely into three sections. We've been looking at it the last two weeks, and this is the third week. The first section of John 17 is verses 1 through 5, and Jesus is praying for glory. He's praying for glory for his Father as things are about to happen in his life. And then last week, he shifts his focus, not from glory, but to his disciples, the people that are with him directly, right next to him, these 12 men, eventually 11 men, as Judas heads out to betray him. And he's praying specifically for a couple things we saw last week in the text. He's praying for his disciples to get protection for about what they're about to walk through. He's praying to his father on their behalf for protection, for fullness of joy, and for direction as they continue his mission in the world. And what we're going to look at again this morning is there's another shift of focus in verses 20 through 26. Jesus is not praying for the disciples anymore, the ones that are right with him. He's praying for the church. He's praying for you and I. What we're going to see is he shifts his focus. It's not in verse 20. It's not just that he's praying for those that are with him, but everyone who's going to hear his word through those disciples. He's praying for you and I, even in this moment. What does he pray for the church? We need to be aware of that. This is the one time, again, we hear the Father praying specifically for the church. And when I say church, I'm not talking about a building. I'm not talking about an organization. I'm talking about the people of God. That's who the church is. The people have decided to submit themselves to Jesus, and the way of Jesus, they become the church. And Jesus could have prayed anything for the church in this moment. He focuses on one thing, which is really interesting to me. He could have prayed that this community of followers would be winsome, that they would be attractive, that people would be drawn to them. He could have prayed that they would be smart, that they would have a clear vision for what the church is supposed to be. That would be a good thing to pray for this community that is called the church. He could have prayed for wisdom, just like Solomon asked one thing. He asked for wisdom, and God grants him wisdom. 
man, we need some wisdom in our community, in our church. He doesn't pray for wisdom. He could have prayed that this community, this church would be organized. Could have prayed that we would be popular. But he doesn't pray that. Even a couple verses before he says, in chapters before, he says, actually, the world is not going to like you, this community of Jesus followers. David Kinneman and Gabe Lyons in their 2000 book called Unchristian say that Christianity has an image problem. Christianity has an image problem. If you're not familiar with the book, it's a very, very good book done by Barna. And in the research, what they're trying to do in this book is they're surveying young people and they're saying, what do you believe about Christians? What would you say is reflective of the church? Somebody that calls themselves a Christian. And in their book, they let us know what the research shows. That young people that are not a part of the church, they say six things specifically about how they experience Christians, how they experience the church. I'm going to read a couple of them. The first is that the church is hypocritical. Christians are hypocrites. In one line, they say this. They say, so how did Christians acquire such a hypocritical image in America today? Let's start with the most obvious reason. Our lives don't match our beliefs. In many ways, our lifestyles and perspectives are no different than those around us. Not only are we hypocrites, according to the research, the church and Christians, but we're also uncaring. That was another thing that came to the surface in the research. And in a conversation they have in the book with somebody that is not a Christian that they interview and they survey and they say, listen, how do you feel about Christians? It's like, man, just doesn't seem like they really care about me. Like, they care about me coming to church, but they don't really care about me as a person. Listen to what this young man said who they were interviewing. He says, a young guy approached me in a subway station once, friendly, full of questions, interested in talking. He seemed really nice, and I couldn't believe a New Yorker was being, well, so, so nice. Next time I heard from him, he invited me to a Bible study, and that was all he wanted to talk about. When I said no thanks, I never heard from him again. Kind of the research keeps showing of like, listen, if you're going to come to church with me or you're going to come to a Bible study, I'll care about you. But if you're not going to do that, I'm not interested in you at all. We're hypocritical. We're uncaring. Some of the other things that come up in the book, we're too political. We're too sheltered from the world. We're super judgmental. And even as you look at the landscape of Christianity over the years, not just recently in the past years, because you can name popular Christian leaders that have fallen in the last couple of years, but this has been going on since the church started. I mean, my wife and I watched a show just this last week um, on Jim and Tammy Faye Baker, a movie about their lives. And when you step into this Christian spotlight of fame, it seems to unravel pretty quickly. That book was in 2007. In 2017, 10 years later, LifeWay Research did a similar survey. And a majority, 66% of Americans ages 23 to 30, say they stopped attending church on a regular basis at least for a year after turning 18. Among their top reasons was that the church members seemed divisive, judgmental, and hypocritical. It doesn't seem to be changing 10 years later, the research. And again, this is the one time we hear Jesus praying to the Father on behalf of this community called the church. What does 
he pray for? He prays for one thing. He prays for oneness. That's what we're going to see in this text this morning. Look down at your Bible, John 17, starting at verse 20. Jesus says, I do not ask for these only, but for those who will believe in me through your word, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you have given to me, I have given to them, that they may be one as we are one. And in them, you in me, that they may become perfectly one, so that the world may know that you have sent me and loved me even as you have loved me. So this is what Jesus is praying. He's praying for oneness. When I say oneness, what does that mean? How do we want to define that this morning in this prayer that Jesus gives to his Father? What I mean by oneness is this unbroken bond of unity and harmony. This unbroken bond of unity and harmony, and that's what Jesus is praying for the church. The opposite of that oneness would be division and dissension. And Jesus is praying that we would be one. We would have unity and harmony with each other in this community called the church. This idea of oneness is a thread that actually runs throughout the entire biblical story. If you're familiar with your Bible, the idea of unity and harmony among God's people, among God and his people, and his people among his people runs through the entire Bible. Genesis chapter 1, just after God, or chapter 2, after God creates all good things in Genesis 1 and 2, he creates man and woman at the height of his creation. And listen to what he says in Genesis chapter 2, verses 24 and 25. He says, therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and we're not ashamed. This is the pinnacle of God's good creation. Even that last verse, it sounds kind of funny. They're naked and unashamed, but it really is about being vulnerable and in your vulnerability, still being connected with one another. The two will become one. Jesus doubles down on this creation narrative in Matthew 19. As he's in this debate and this interaction with his religious leaders, he says this in Matthew 19, starting in verse 4. He answers them and he says, Have you not read that he who created from the beginning made male and female? And he said, Therefore, let a man should leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. They are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. The very end of the Bible, the book of Revelation, John gets this revelation of how everything is going to be made right again. We're in the midst of sin and destruction right now even, but one day Jesus is going to come back again and make everything right and everything new. It says this in Revelation 7, verse 9 through 10. After this, I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes, from all peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands, and crying out with a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. What John is saying at the very end, when everything is made right again, just like the garden, is that it's going to be all people from all nations that are going to be doing one thing collectively in unity and harmony, praising God. This idea of oneness runs throughout the entire story of the Bible. So what do we see about oneness? Even in this prayer that Jesus prays to his father, there's a couple of things that we need to pull out of the text that we see here. First thing is that oneness at its core is relational. 
Oneness at its core is relational. Look down at verse 21 again. It says that they may be one just as you, Father, are in me and I am in you, that they also may be in us, that the world may believe that you have sent me. This idea of oneness, harmony, is about relationship. The whole Bible is based on relationship. A God that relationally loves his people, wants to come to them, wants to heal them, wants to connect with them, and then he wants them to go out and connect with each other. Christianity is about relationship. And we are to image God as his creation, and he is perfectly on display in oneness, in harmony, within himself and the Trinity. And so we're called to this. Oneness is at its core is relational. The second thing we see is oneness at its core is missional. See it in verse 21 and verse 23. Look down at 23 again. It says, in, I in them and you in me, that they may become perfectly one so that the world may know you sent me and loved them even as you have loved me. So there's a purpose for this harmony this unity, this oneness, the purpose of as we are collectively one together, loving each other back and forth in harmony and unity, people on the outside would go, what is that? I haven't seen that. Why do you not repay evil for evil? But actually, when your spouse says something mean to you, you don't return that insult for an insult, and you actually say, you know what? I love you. And when the world sees that, they will see Jesus. All the spouses are looking at each other and going, why don't you do that to me when I do that to you? It's biblical, I'm just saying. Now, as followers of Jesus, if you're a Christian in this room, this is important for us to do. Anytime we're reading the text and we're understanding the story of God and the Bible, we need to do two things when we look at Genesis chapter 1 and chapter 2. We have to root ourselves in the creation narrative. And again, in Genesis chapter 1 and 2, God makes everything good. He makes everything right. And so we need to see what has God made good? What has he made right? Do you know that in Genesis 2 and 3, if you're not, or 1 and 2, if you're not familiar with the biblical story, it all comes undone in Genesis chapter 3. Because men and women decide to choose their own way, and sin enters into the equation of the Bible. Right? They choose not to believe God. They believe and they get tricked into believing the serpent that says, you know what? God's holding out on you. Did he really say that? Do you think he really loves you? And they believe that, and they disobey the one thing God tells them not to do, and then sin enters into the equation. So before we look at Genesis 3, uh, we have to look at Genesis 1 and 2, and we say, what is in God's good creation? Just like work. Work is in Genesis 1 and 2. God puts Adam in the garden to tend it. Work is a good thing that God gives his people. But then what happens in Genesis 3, some of the results of sin are the work is hard and toilsome. Sex is a good thing a God thing that he creates between a husband and a wife, and it's good, and it's beautiful, and it should reflect the union of Jesus and his church. It's good, and it's right. But what happens in Genesis 3? Sin comes into the equation, and it twists it. It distorts it. It manipulates it. And so we have to keep coming back to Genesis 1 and 2 and say, what is good and right in the original creation? And then based on what's good and right in the original creation, how does sin now distort that thing that's good and right? 
doesn't go all the way out, right? People still need work. They still love work, but it's distorted. People still have a desire to connect sexually, but it's distorted because of sin. And I would argue that oneness is in Genesis 1 and 2 within the Trinity and within God's people of Adam and Eve, that this harmony and connection is seen in Genesis 1 and 2, but then what happens because of Genesis 3? We always need to be doing that. How does sin distort what we see moving forward? Not to throw those things out, but go, how is it, how is it not quite right? That's one thing we need to do. And then the second question we always need to ask is because it's distorted by sin, how does what Jesus' work on the cross do to redeem it? And how do we follow those in conjunction with one another? So how does sin distort this idea of oneness, of unity, of harmony? Let's look at Genesis 3 together. Genesis chapter 3, and I'm going to be kind of all over the Bible today, just kind of running through some of those threads. So you might be flipping a ton or just follow along on the screen. But Genesis 3, starting in verse 8, as I mentioned, Adam and Eve decide not to follow the commandment of God, but they disobey him. They get tricked into believing, and they bite the fruit, which is what God tells them not to do. And then this is the result of that. Genesis chapter 3, starting in verse 8. And they, meaning Adam and Eve, heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called the man and said to him, where are you? I think that's such an interesting question, right? Like God knows where he is. And doesn't God ask us that question all the time? Like, where are you? I care about you. Do you, do you even understand where you are? Verse 10. And he said, I heard you in the sound, this is Adam responding, I heard you in the sound of the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, and I hid myself. He said, who told you you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, the woman who you gave me, she gave me the fruit of the tree, and I ate it. Then the Lord said to the woman, what is it that you have done? The woman said, the serpent deceived me, and I ate it. Let's just look at these couple of verses and let's talk about how this idea of oneness, of unity and harmony get disrupted and distorted by the act of sin. Some of the reflections of that. Well, first thing we see is that verse 8, Jesus, or I'm sorry, God comes and he asks the man and his wife, where are you? And they're hiding. You cannot be one when you are hiding. You cannot be in harmony with somebody if you are hiding from them. So we see right away there's brokenness in verses 9 and 10. There's division covered in fear and shame. This is when fear and shame enter into the narrative of all of life because of sin. And you cannot be one with somebody in harmony and unity if you are afraid of them or if you have shame. It will not work. Verses 11 through 13, now we see there's even division, not just from God, but from one another. There's blame shifting. It's this woman you gave me. It's this serpent that tricked me. And anytime you are not taking responsibility for your own actions and you start blaming other people, you cannot be one. It won't work. Because of sin, we have a oneness problem with one another throughout the history of the church. We don't know how to do it. 
And this is what I think we're going to find interesting in the back end of this prayer as we look at verses 24 through 26, is that we all know we need to be unified. We need to be one, not only from this prayer, but from other places all throughout the New Testament. We're called to be one. We're going to look at a couple of verses in a minute, but we can't seem to do it. We can't seem to be unified. I think a lot of the times when I've heard this text taught, I, I, I don't get to the, to the root of what's going on underneath what Jesus is praying to the Father. Of course, he's praying for oneness for us, for unity for us, for harmony for us, because he knows sin is naturally going to go like this for us as a community. Sin wants to rip us apart. It wants to make us divided from one another. So he's praying for oneness, but there's a base or an anchor to the oneness that's important that we're going to see here in a minute. Because just like Jesus prays or, or teaches in Matthew chapter 7, he's teaching at the end of the Beatitudes, and he's saying, like, listen, you can choose to build your house on a certain foundation. You remember when Jesus says this? He said, you can build it on the sand or you can build it on the rock. And it's interesting at the time when Jesus was saying that in Jerusalem, the, the sand would almost appear like rock on the surface. It would look hard on the surface. And so from the outside, it would say, look, it looks like we're building on something solid, but actually when a storm comes, if you're not built on the rock, if your foundation is not on something solid, but it's on something that only looks solid, it's ultimately going to get destroyed. And what I think we're going to learn here is that the idea of oneness, of harmony, of unity, if it is not rooted and built on one thing, it will fall apart. And we won't be one. The one thing that we're going to see when we look down in John 17, starting in 24, is love. If you are not rooted and anchored and built on love, you can't be one. It will not happen. John chapter 17, verse 24. Let's keep looking at the text as Jesus continues to pray to his Father. He says, Father, I desire that they also, whom you have given me, may be with me where I am, to see my glory that you have given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. A righteous father, even though the world does not know you, I know you, and these know that you have sent me. Verse 26, and I have made known to them your name, and I will continue to make it known that they love with which you have loved me may be in them, and I in them. And often we try to do oneness or unity or harmony based on something other than love as the foundation. For example, some of us try to do unity and harmony or oneness based on a personal desire or based on some type of accomplishment that we're trying to do, and we don't base it on love. If you want unity, if you want oneness, the motivation has to be love. If it's not love, it's getting into a very dangerous category. And ultimately, just like Jesus said of the house being built on the sand, it's going to fall. I think we find an interesting place in the Old Testament where we see the power of unity not based on love, but based on something else. We're going to look at Genesis chapter 11. Some of you are familiar with the story. It's the story of the Tower of Babel. Let's look at these verses real quick. Genesis chapter 11, verses 1 through 9, and let's see how um, if it, uh, something is not based, if unity or oneness is not based on love, but based on something else, God is not happy with it. Genesis chapter 11, verse 1. Now the whole earth had one language and the same words. 
And the people migrated from the east, and they found uh, a plain in the land of Shinar and settled there. Verse 3, and they said to one another, come, let us make bricks and burn them thoroughly. And they had brick for stone and bitumen for mortar. Verse 4, and then they said, come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top to the heavens, and let us make a name for ourselves, lest we be dispersed over the face of the whole earth. Verse 5, how does the Lord respond to this? And real quickly, do you catch that? Do you see what happens in verse 4? Why are they building a tower? Are they building a tower based on love for one another? Or are they building a tower to make a name for themselves? Verse 5, here's how God responds to it. And the Lord came down to see the city and the tower, which the children of man had built. And the Lord said, behold, they are one people. They all have one language, and this is only the beginning of what they will do. And nothing that they propose to do now will be impossible for them. Come, let us go down there and confuse their language so that they might not understand each other's speech. So the Lord dispersed them from there, from over the face of all the earth, and they left off the building in the city. Therefore, its name was called Babel because the Lord confused their language over all the earth. And from there, the Lord dispersed them all over the face of the earth. Don't you find that interesting? Like even in verse 5, it says that God sees that, man, these people are unified. There's harmony between them. They can do anything they put their minds to as a group, as a unit. You would think God's all about harmony. He's all about oneness. Why would he come down and disrupt it and mess it up? I think he comes down to disrupt and mess it up because their oneness is not based in love. It's based on let us make a name for ourselves. And God goes, that's not the way to treat oneness. That's not the root. That's not the foundation. And he comes down and he breaks it up. So again, as followers of Jesus, anytime we look at those first two chapters of the Bible, Genesis 1 and 2, and we see God's good creation, we're asking two questions. We're asking, one, how does sin distort it? How does it look different because of sin? And then the second question we're asking is, how does what Jesus does on the cross and the resurrection, how does it redeem it? So how does Jesus' work redeem the idea of oneness, of unity, of harmony? Ephesians chapter 2. I feel like this is the most clear explanation of how Jesus and what he does on the cross actually helps us come together again in the foundation of love. If you're familiar with Ephesians chapter 2, it really breaks into two different sections in that chapter. The first section, verses 1 through 10, is all about Paul telling us who we are in Christ, that you've been forgiven, that it's not of your own doing, but it's of God, and we can be free again. And then he talks not only to individuals, but also to the community. Verse 11, let's pick it up. It says, therefore, remember that one time you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision, by what is called the circumcision is made in flesh by hands. So just pause for just one second real quick. If you're unfamiliar, there were the Jewish people, God's people, the nation of Israel, and then there were the Gentiles, everyone else. And these guys did not get along. Right? God's people were trying to be holy. They're trying to live by the right ways. And the Gentile people were not. They didn't know the ways of God. That's some of the background of the contracts. Verse 12. He says, remember 
that you were at one time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise. You had no hope and without God in the world. Verse 13, but now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. Verse 14, for he himself is our peace who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law and commandments and express and ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of two. So making peace and, by, and might reconcile us both to God through one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. What is Paul saying? He's saying, hey, you were separated because of sin before, but what Jesus has done on the cross not only saves you personally, individually, but it actually saves you as a community, as a church, that Jesus' work on the cross has broken down that wall of hostility. The reason you don't like that person and you don't like that person, but you say you're in Jesus, actually you come together because of the cross. Where else do we see this played out in the church, which is supposed to be the model of what it looks like to walk in the ways of Jesus, inviting new people into that life. I'm going to look at five verses. We're going to look at them together. I'm going to fly through them just to give you an idea of this thing is threaded all throughout the New Testament that we as the church should be people of harmony and unity, that God desires that oneness, not two different distinct, but one body. Acts chapter 4 Verse 32, I'm flying through these again. Now, the full number of those who believed were one heart and one soul. And no one said any of the, of the things belonged to him was his own, but that everything they had was in common. 1 Corinthians 12, verse 12. Just for as the, one, the body is one, as many members, and all members of the body, though many, are one body. So it is with Christ. For in one spirit you were all baptized into one body, Jews, Greeks, slaves, or free, and all were made to think, or excuse me, made to drink of one spirit. Ephesians chapter 4, verse 4. There is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to one hope that belongs to your call. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God, and Father over all, who is over all and is through all and in all. Romans 12, verse 4. Just as in one body we have many members, and the members do not have all the same function. So we, though are many, are one body in Christ and individual members of one another. Let me just make a comment on that verse very quickly. Again, Romans 12, just as we're one body, we have many members, and all members do not have the same function. Unity does not mean uniformity. Doesn't mean we all look the same, all do the same things. No, it's we all have different parts in this body of Christ to play, but we're all one collectively together. And then Philippians chapter 1, verse 27 says, Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come to see you or I am absent, I may hear that you. I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit, in one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. This idea of oneness that Jesus is praying to his Father and that is throughout the church needs to be of primary importance to us. So why don't we do it? Why can't we be one with one another? Two reasons that I think are prevalent and would be helpful for our conversation. Number one, um, because we still live in the world and because there's still sin. 
right? It's not all made right again as we read in Revelation, but there's still sin in the world. There's still uh, flesh that we deal with, with our own selfish desires that are still at play, even though we're redeemed. There's the world that presses against those desires that, that says, ah, oh, follow that desire. And then there's the enemy that we talked about a couple of months ago that would want us to believe in those lies. We still live in the world. And there's still injustice in different communities. And any time there's injustice, you will not experience oneness. Anytime there is a community of a power imbalance, and people are being pushed down so others can be elevated, you will not experience oneness. We see this early in the church. In Acts chapter 6, you remember the story. Acts chapter 6, verses 1 through 3, let's look at it briefly. It says, now in these days when the disciples were increasing in number, so they're scaling, they're growing, God's people are preaching the word and people are coming to know him. It says, a complaint by the Hellenists, those are the Greek people, rose against the Hebrews, the Israelite people, because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. Verse 2, and the twelve summoned the full number of disciples and said, it is not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. Therefore, brothers, pick out among you seven men of good repute, full of the spirit and wisdom, who will appoint to this duty. There was an imbalance of injustice in this moment. The Greek people weren't getting what they needed. The widows weren't getting what they needed because of what was happening in the past. And they said, this is not right. If there is injustice, we're not experiencing oneness. And so they come to the disciples and say, this isn't right. And you go, you're right. It's not right. We need to delegate so that everybody's getting what they need. We still live in a world of sin. We're told to do our best, but ultimately, we can't control the thoughts and decisions of others. You can try your hardest to have peace. You can try your hardest to have harmony. And depending on the response, it's really not in your control. I love how Romans 12 says it, verse 17, when Paul says, Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable inside of all. Verse 18, if it is possible, as far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. You need to do your best to step forward and have oneness and forgive and love people and have harmony. But ultimately, if you are in a relationship with somebody else, it is not in your control all the time. The first reason we don't live out our oneness is because there's still sin in the world, still sin in us. And then the second reason is that down deep, man, you don't believe that you really love. You don't really believe that the gospel is true, myself included. It's hard to believe that the Father says, you are my beloved. You are my son. You're my daughter. You're my beloved. You don't have to do anything to perform. I love you just because you're you. Man, that's so hard for us to believe. Because we've grown up in a society that tells us our worth is based on everything we do and everything we say. And so when I mess up in my Christian life, when I don't follow the way of Jesus, to still believe that I'm the beloved, to still receive grace is really, really hard. It's really challenging. 
And we need to anchor ourselves in that love, which is what Jesus is praying to the Father, that they would know that they're loved. And because of that, then they can move into loving one another well. Man, Jesus heard that voice. If you're familiar with the story of Jesus getting baptized, before he does any public ministry, he comes out of the water and there's a voice that comes down. What does it say? Audible voice. This is my son with whom I'm well pleased. If you're a follower of Jesus, do you listen to that voice? Do you anchor your life in that voice that you are the beloved? Because if you don't anchor yourself there, if that's not the foundation of your life, you're not going to be free. Henry Nouwen says it this way, talking about this issue. He says, Jesus listened to that voice all the time. He was able to walk right through life. People were applauding him, laughing at him, praising him, and rejecting him, calling Hosanna and then calling crucify him. But in the midst of all of that, Jesus knew one thing. I am the beloved. I am God's favorite. And he clung to that voice. Do you cling to that voice? Because that is the way you will experience oneness with other people. Because if you don't cling to that voice, what happens is you try to get your belovedness from other people around you. And so you'll get into groups, you'll get into churches, you'll get into friendships, you'll get into family, and you go, I need this from you to get acceptance. And that's not fair to that person. Because they can't give you that. Only Christ can give you that. That's the only place you can actually get it. And you have to keep telling it to yourself over and over and over again. That is why we gather on Sundays together. That is why we gather in homes throughout the week to tell each other what's true, that you actually are the beloved, that Jesus loves you no matter what you have done this week. Now live in that love. You have to anchor yourself in that. That needs to be your foundation for your life. That's the only way you can move into harmony and love and oneness with other people. The only way we even have access to that love is what we are going to see in the next several chapters as Jesus makes his way to the cross to sacrifice on our behalf, to give us what we cannot earn on our own, salvation and connection with God, to call us beloved because of what he does on the cross. And as we receive that message of grace and truth, he changes us. He adopts us into his family, and we're called to love each other as he has loved us. We're going to remember that today as we respond. We're going to remember the goodness of God. And as we take communion, we'll get some instructions here in just a minute. But as we take communion, I want us to look at this verse, this last verse in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, when Paul is talking about communion. He says this, 1 Corinthians 10 verse 16, the cup of blessing that we bless, is, is it not participation in the blood of Christ? The bread that we break, is it not participation in the body of Christ? Verse 17, because there is one bread who we are many are one body, for we partake of one bread. God calls us together at the foot of the cross. It's all equal. We are one together. Let's be reminded of that oneness, and let's show that oneness to the world. Let's pray together. Father, thanks that you love us, 
And it's displayed by the work of your son, Jesus, on the cross. Jesus, thanks that you pray on our behalf to the Father that we would be one, we would have unity, we would have harmony, that we would not have division, that even as sin distorts our version of oneness, that your work on the cross brings it back together. Would you help us be anchored in that truth that we are loved? And because of that love, we can love other people. Pray that you would make it true in us today. We love you, and we pray this in your name. Amen.